You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. William T. Bowman is the author of the National Book Award-winning novel Europe Central. His works of nonfiction include Rising Up and Rising Down and Imperial, which were both nominated for National Book Critics Circle Award. He won the Penn Center Award for Fiction, the Whiting Writers Award, and the Strauss Living Writer Award. His new book is The Dying Grass. Thank you for joining me, William. Thank you very much for having me. This is a brilliant book. It's a huge book. And I think that one of the things I want to thank you for is for putting this all into one book instead of giving us the Dying Grass trilogy volumes one, two, and three bled out over a period of three years. Who might have made the publisher a little bit happier. <laughs> well, I think that the effect, though, of the epic sweep in one volume is so much more powerful than it is when you split these things up. And I've seen that happen before. I think you're right. If I had had to break it up maybe halfway through after the big whole battle, it would have been tolerable. But this is the way I prefer it to come out. So I'm grateful that it worked out that way. You know, one of the things that this book immediately hits us with is the the wild and strange prose and the formatting and style that you've developed for this book. It reminds me uh, in some ways of the innovations of video and the internet and intercutting. Were any of those kind of formats an influence on the way you decided to put this together? I would say the single greatest influence was that beautiful Peter Matheson book, Far Tortuga, that has a lot of white space on the page. There's a symbol of a rising or setting sun to represent dawn and dusk when somebody dies. His name appears there. It's very simple and effective. And I remember reading that back in the 80s and thinking, how interesting. You know, it's it's like a movie. And then this sort of goes in a, a somewhat different direction. It's less visual in that way, immediately on the page. But I use the page to represent space and simultaneity, a bunch of things going on at once. On a battlefield, maybe someone is crying for help on the right-hand side of the page, and then that call gradually moves closer and closer to the left-hand side of the page. I remember that scene. It's yeah. really it's really powerful. And I think that those the kind of indentations you use, how long did it take you to develop this system? Because once we get used to it, this thing reads like lightning. It took a couple years. I got off to a false start. I originally thought I would have maybe three columns, and the center column would be descriptions of the landscape, and then things could happen on the left or right of that column. And then I realized that was way too rigid. It didn't have to be that way, that I could use those indentions for anything I wanted. Someone can be saying, oh, yes, sir, General Howard, and he can be thinking something really nasty about General Howard. (laughs) Which happens a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, this is part of the Seven Dreams series. This is a super ambitious series, and I believe, maybe if I'm not mistaken, that that came, that rolls a little bit out of your very first work, Super Ambitious Moral Calculus, Rising Up and Rising Down. 
Yeah, I guess it does. You know, in Rising Up and Rising Down, I wanted to figure out under what circumstances violence can be justified because people make excuses for it. Oh, I had to do this, you know, to defend my homeland, my religion, my gender, whatever. And so you can break those excuses down and think about them. But inevitably, a person's behavior is a mixture of things, a mixture of motives. And so it goes for both sides in a conflict. So it gets much more complicated than we would like it to be. You know, like the debate about female circumcision. Well, clearly we're against it because we believe in defense of women and defense of children. They're in favor of it because they believe in defense of creed, defense of culture. And so we can't completely dismiss the other side. We have to say, well, let's break it down and try to figure it out and see if we have any common ground. And we may or may not. But, you know, I, I find when I'm uh, describing the Nez Perce War, for instance, it's similarly a mix of good and bad motivations. So I think it's safe to say that the Nez Perce War was an unjust war. It was a war that we never should have undertaken. The Nez Perce were in the right. It's also true to say that from an immediate standpoint, the Nez Perce started it by raping and killing white settlers. We can blame General Howard for being Chief Joseph's antagonist. Howard was a really, really good person who meant well and was also doing bad things. So that's the sort of you know, complexity that, that one faces in looking at this situation. It seems to me that the rising up or rising down, writing that, gave you the ability to create these really diffuse and difficult to describe situations and make and show that those moral calculations don't weigh up as easily as we might like to think they do. Yeah, if only they did. If only one side were 100% wrong. Unfortunately, well, that's, I guess, what Hitler would have liked. Let's just exterminate these people who I say are 100% wrong. And we think about it. We say, you know, we don't like Hitler's approach. We're not going to like that approach in, in the real world. Any time we say, okay, this group does not deserve any consideration, any pity. So uh, in a war, of course, what happens is that more and more people on both sides are killed and both sides start losing their pity for each other. It just gets worse and worse. Now, these Seven Dreams books are all tales of what are called first contact books. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, that's a good description. First contact or eventually you might say, you know, the, the, the crisis of contact. You know, in The Dying Grass, the first contact was the Nez Perce when they met Lewis and Clark in mm-hmm. 1805-06. And so they had until really the 1870s before things got dire. And this book just mentions Lewis and Clark a little bit. It sort of jumps immediately to the the time when uh, the tensions were escalating. Now, all of these books uh, utilize uh, you. You're in all of them. You call yourself William the Blind. When did you decide to become William the Blind? I really like William the Blind. You know, <laughs> he's a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> he does his best, but... Um, he's quite limited, you mm-hmm. know. Um, like me, 
poor old William the Blind can't always see so well. And so when he is trying to describe history, any place in the past or anything that he thinks he knows, he's probably going to screw up a little bit. He knows it and he admits it. We're never really going to know what was in Chief Joseph's heart or General Howard's heart. And William the Blind can make the best guess at it, but probably he's going to be wrong here and there. And so it's sort of an exercise in humility. This book is is really beautifully constructed. And at the heart of it, we have these two characters, Chief Joseph and and, uh, and General Howard, and they're kind of... um, they're the same. They're very much the same. And there are men who have good intentions, but just find themselves on the wrong side of those good intentions. Yeah. One of the real uh, tragedies with the Nez Perce War is the, the difficulty in figuring out how it could have been stopped. General Sherman once said that um, if there had been enough soldiers in the army to stand almost um, hand-to-hand all the way across the Rocky Mountains. They couldn't have kept the settlers out. And when the Nez Perce Reservation first started getting invaded by gold miners, there were hardly any soldiers around, and they, they asked Washington what they could do to help these Indians. They were completely undermanned. They were helpless, and uh, they felt ashamed. So... It's easy to say, oh, the wicked army. But actually, so many of the Indian fighting generals in their own writings would say, you know, about this or that Indian war, you know, the Indians were mistreated, raped, shot, starved on reservations, and uh, they would turn to us as their friends, and we couldn't help them. And finally, when they were starving, they'd rise up and try to get some food. And then, you know, we would have to shoot them down, and it's an outrage. And one of the things I like about those 19th century generals is that they they say that. I wish we would hear some of our generals in these unjust wars over in Iraq and Afghanistan and who knows where else we'll be saying, you know, it's disgusting what I'm being made to do. I'm doing it, but it's disgusting. I would I would respect those people a little more if they actually came out and said it instead of being blandly corporate. You know, that brings to mind one of the uh, brilliant aspects of this book is that you explore all the politics on both sides of the time. And it all seems so contemporary. The uh, On the United States side, we had a contested election where votes were stolen and essentially the election was stolen the dem- away from the Democrats. Why does that sound familiar? That's right. <laughs> Good old Rutherford B. Hayes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Rutherford, I've never heard that one before. That's a, That's great. That's what they called it. Yeah. <laughs> and on the other side, what I found especially fascinating was the politics within the Indian factions. We have these different chiefs who have different visions of what they want to do. Um, Joseph is a little more accommodating than we have. Uh, I'm Tululi. Tuhuhuzote. Tuhuhuzote. Yeah. I love that character. He's he's kind of a bad guy. I mean, he's he bad. Was. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, they say he was so strong that he could carry two deer after he'd killed them, just carry them all the way back. And he could get drunk and it would take many, many people to tie him up. <laughs> well, I think that you do a, a, a beautiful job of exploring all these viewpoints. And one of the things that struck me as I was reading this book was, and this book is written in these kind of levels of streams of consciousness, whereas you go across the page, you're deeper and deeper into somebody's mind until you rivet back into the present. But I, I thought that, how did you create within yourself this kind of what I think of as the universal language? We all have the monkey mind that's running. And I think that we all, to a certain extent, believe that that monkey mind speaks the universal language. And you evoke that so that when you're exploring the thoughts of the settlers and the Indians, they both to us sound contemporary and, and, and you know, urgent right now. Well, I was lucky enough to have many, many written sources to draw on. So in the case of the of the settlers or the cavalry, there are old newspaper accounts, there are uh, cavalry memoirs, things like that. And so after a while, you start to, you know, build up a vocabulary for 1877 of what American English uh, might have been like. You know, it's interesting to think that it was right around then that Tom Sawyer was published. And we don't think of it as being, you know, that that ancient a book, really. No, that seems very contemporary. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is that people have subtly modernized a lot of the punctuation. Mm. So back in that time, you know, they would, they would spell today with a hyphen in the middle. Mm. No, I try and do the same thing. With the Indians, it was a little bit harder. There was a wonderful man named L.V. McWhorter, who befriended some Nez Perce, and they trusted him. And he actually recorded a, the only real oral histories of the war from the Indian point of view. There are two very, very important books that he compiled. For the Indians, you know, English was not a first language. So they often speak in a kind of pidgin. Obviously, the Indians were not going to speak to each other in pidgin. But there's a dictionary that was compiled by a man named Aoki. Um, it's a really, really long book, longer than Dying Grass, and it's just uh, Nez Perce to English. So I read it from cover to cover. Wow. <laughs> um, and tried to figure out a way of altering, you know, what was presented in Pigeon into some sort of Nez Perce format. And there are certain rhetorical devices, you know, that that they would say, sometimes other Indians too, such as, my heart feels this, or my heart says this, as opposed to I do. And then there were these long words, a lot of long words that in our language are sentences. Mm -hmm. So there was one I remembered that uh, was, she is gathering grass for bedding. So I thought, oh, okay, every time, you know, the Nez Perce stop at night, I'm going to have some female characters go out and gather grass for bedding all these things that I wouldn't have thought of. Mm -hmm. So the dictionary, in a way, helped me imagine some of the quotidian stuff in their culture. Well, I think, too, you do a good job of capturing these sort of alien thought patterns. I mean, because these people, in terms of the first contact, even though we had known them for a while, they still had a very different culture, a very different approach to the world. And you do a great job of keeping them um, 
not from seeming out of the cliche of the the noble savage as people who are, you know, warlike. They like to have fun. I mean, they are real people. Yeah. You know, one of the things about translations of literature that, that really bothers me is, at least nowadays, there's this idea that you want to make everything contemporary. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe some Japanese novel gets translated in such a way that the currencies are expressed, you know, as dollars and cents because I think, oh, yeah, that way we don't have to think about it. We'll have the equivalent. I think that's dead wrong. And that let's trust the reader. Let's not try to cover up the alien side. The more alien, the better, really, the more interesting it is. Absolutely. I found these really like an immersive uh, read. And that's one of the things, too. Your prose, because of the way there's so much space on the paper, and it's I found this that I was reading this, I think, differently than I've read anything else. It was cl- much closer to poetry. And I thought, well, this is the book that you get when you take Walt Whitman, having just written Leaves of Grass, teleport him to the 21st century, let him watch uh, Game of Thrones and Little Big Man. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Lock him back in your reference library and say, go. And I, But the the end result is that this reads more lightly, I think, than, than book, some books? Yeah, it probably reads um, more lightly than most of my books generally do because they don't have the white space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, um, you know, if we closed up all the white space, it would not be so much different from my other books. As you were creating this giant cast of characters, did you have to, how do you keep track of that and how much of this... You know, do you improvise and do you immerse yourself and then just let it come out? Or do you go back and forth? Well, you know, the the reader may find some of the glossaries helpful. Mm. I definitely did. You know, I, I would construct those for myself. For instance, there's a, um, a very minor character named Burning Coals. Mm-hmm. And he's not mentioned very often at all in the original sources. But... At Big Hole, he was asked by some of the warriors to land his horses um, so that they could go uh, back on the trail and keep watch. Uh, And he was very stingy and very proud of his horses. And if he had agreed, there would have been no dawn attack on Big Hole, the horrendous um, slaughter, you know, when the cavalry were shooting into the teepees at dawn would have been avoided. The Nez Perce, who knows, maybe could have even gotten to Canada. It's hard to know. So we know that Burning Coles was very, very proud of his horse herd. And the Nez Perce were very rich in horses, but became more and more impoverished as their horses got lame and they were gradually losing their mobility. General Howard was trying to grind them down and eventually he really succeeded. So Burning Coles doesn't get any big mentions anywhere, but I would try to drop him into different parts of the novel at the beginning. You don't know anything about Burning Coals. He's just one in a list of names, but it talks about how proud he is of his many, many horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and near the end, Burning Coals still has a few horses left. So that would be one of the ways in which I tried to use these, these characters as markers to portray the, the main events. And, and I think, too, one thing that 
this book is remarkably effective at. As a history, we know how it happened. We know what happened. Yeah. So your challenge as a writer is to create tension for us. And I was reading this book, and I, you know, I know how it. You know, it's going to end. It's not going to end well for the Indians. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. That's for sure. Yet, uh, you're pulling for him, and you're rooting for him, not just because you like them better, but because you create a real aura of suspense. And how do you do that? I mean, is it stuff you leave out? I think that you don't always know, at least the first time you read it, when. There's going to be an attack or a battle. Big Hole was a tremendous surprise for the Indians. And then later on, at a place called Camas Meadows, they attacked Howard's army and ran off some mules, tried to run off some horses also. And Howard, it sounds like, was really petrified. You know, for a minute he thought it was going to be a massacre. And so to the people who were involved in it, day after day after day, waiting and then getting bored and getting afraid and never knowing it was often a shock when something happened. And that's what they say about war generally. You know, it's moments of boredom punctuated by extreme terror. So maybe some people will say there are too many moments of boredom and not enough terror, but I did my best, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd say that the moments of terror are fairly extreme in this book. And this book brings to mind what a horrible species we are. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it. Yeah, humans, we are, we are practiced executioners. And the Nez Perce became quite mean mm. over time. And some of my friends who've read the book say, you know, they thought it was great when they started killing prospectors and so forth, too, that they deserved it. The Nez Perce were saying... Every white man is our enemy because everyone will then uh, tell others where we have been and they had no pity for us. So, you know, we have to kill them. And it was probably true, but I don't root for them, you know, when they do that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't root for the whites when they are killing them. It's always awful to me. (laughs) Well, too, I I mean, just to see the the history, what, how um, cavalier... The United States government was with the promises it made. I mean, that's just remarkable and extremely depressing, don't you think? Yeah. And I wonder if we could take, you know, many other periods from our history and find the same thing, you know, the way Saddam Hussein used to be our ally, and then suddenly we decided we have to kill him. But, you know, I'm not knocking the U.S. Most likely it's the same in every country, in every large group. Because as you say, you know, um, human beings are not the greatest. When you were putting this together, uh, this is one of the things I really love. I really love all your glossaries and notes. Oh, and, and I noticed that you put a lot of effort. I mean, those aren't just dry recitations of facts. There's some beautiful prose in those notes. And do you write that prose in conjunction while you're writing the piece that it's referring to, or does it come afterwards? In conjunction. And I'm thinking that if someone never looks at those end notes, that is fine by me. But if someone does, you know, he or she deserves to be rewarded once in a while. I would have put in more, but I thought, you know, the book is probably long enough. So, <laughs> Well, how long did it take you to write this book? It's hard to know exactly, but I would say maybe 12 or 13 years. 
And the first time I went on the Nez Perce Trail with my father, who um, would have liked to complete it with me but died, I tried to just go to some of those landscapes without knowing too much about them. And mm-hmm. I thought this way I can describe the landscapes kind of objectively and then so I know there's some kind of battle here, but I don't really know why or what or who they are. And so I'll be able to concentrate more purely on the landscape. And then I kept educating myself more and more about the participants. And so as I went along the Nez Perce Trail, you know, I started getting to know them all better. And then eventually I came back to the beginning parts and uh, looked at those in a, in a different way. Well, I think the... This is a beautiful novel of America, just describing what it was how, and capturing it at a moment of, of transformation when, when America was being transformed literally by as we were overrunning the entire uh, nation. That's right. One of the things that really fascinated me, and I hadn't realized it before, I should have, was that even as there were still... Buffalo, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, and um, Indians being able to go um, quite freely across the plains, there were factories in the East Coast. You know, there was a great dynamo that could create electricity. There were factories with foremen, coal miners, and so the East, you know, was much more modern than one tends to think. And it's so weird to imagine those two worlds existing the way they did, you know, in 1877. President Grant said that without the Civil War, the Plains Indians might have been able to hold on for another hundred years. Kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, no, and that's one thing, too, that when we read history so well-defined and well-described, I think that one can't help but like imagine of the variety of alternatives that all the forks in the paths of this book where you think wow if only um you know he got the horses there or if only you know howard had got had permission to do what he really wanted to do or you know didn't have to pull back that these things all the the variety of alternatives that you consider right suppose that um that the US government had had the uh, surveillance tools that they have now. Oh, and sure, drones. <laughs> that's right. Drones and some kind of a, a border patrol uh, going back and forth along the Rockies and keeping all the Anglo-Americans on their side. And the rest would actually be for the Indians. I wonder what that would be like now. Boy, that's a, <laughs> that's a great uh, premise for an alternate history. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really enjoy the uh, uh, the way that you um, created the the scenes of action, the way they're orchestrated, their way they're kind of chaotic and, and yet um, they draw us in. When you are creating like these big, big scenes where there's a lot going on, do you have to map them out for yourself? Yes, um, and um, and I sort of draw on the. Um the experiences that I've had, you know, as a war journalist. Mm-hmm. And when something really, really frightening is happening, it's necessarily confusing. And when a lot of people are involved, 
some people are figuring out more quickly than others, and you're thinking, okay, now, you know, where am I uh, endangered? Is something happening here? Is it here? And people are running around. It's, um, it's very, very ugly. And then gradually, some kind of organization comes through it, either of resistance or of extermination. But gradually, things are forced into some kind of a pattern. Your, your um, characters, I think, are really, um, they're created in such depth and detail that they give us um, visions of this, uh, a kind of a multifaceted vision. And as you were crafting this, did you find yourself doing, I guess, uh, the, the kind of method acting thing and especially in the scenes where there are a lot of people at once, where there's conversations going on, did you think that you had to, did you write those, like, each part separately? I would often look back at the glossary. I would sometimes even have some glossary-like thing for myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, each um, Nez Perce had what was called a Wyakin, sort of a, a spirit guide. A spirit guide, right. I, I loved the Wyakins. I thought that was a, and that was something, too, that they saw they saw the world fundamentally differently than we did. Right. Yeah, they believed in magic. Yes, exactly. And they believed that each person, you know, was uh, befriended and in part defined by the personality of the the plant or animal or sometimes even maybe the the lightning or crystal or something that that person had encountered in a vision quest. And so, you know, we knew, for instance, that um, Tuhuhul Zote was a very, very aggressive, bellicose kind of badass, you know, as mm-hmm. you were saying. So I thought, all right, let's make his Wyakin the bear. So he's going to be bear-hearted. And so I have to write down somewhere, Bill, when you talk about him, try to always uh, work in some sort of bear-flavored thing if you can. <laughs> I like that. A bear-flavored character. <laughs> and two, the uh, the scenes of where there's like a lot of violence happening are are really beautifully and almost poetically rendered. And I'm wondering how you felt about like writing beautifully about something really, really awful. I mean, you're drawing the readers in to this really deep emotional experience of the most horrific thing that you can possibly imagine. Right. Well, and just as we don't want to say the other, whether the other is the aggressor or the victim, is all bad Mm -hmm. or all good, we don't want to say that this experience and the environment that it's in and the universe that it's in are all unconditionally bad because mm-hmm. no, that moments is of beauty too right yeah it's it, that would be fundamentally untrue you know when someone you love dies um, it doesn't have to be uh, pouring rain it might be a beautiful day mm-hmm. um, and in a way that makes it even sadder that just to be reminded the universe doesn't really care about us and our sufferings and also of course you know if I can try to describe the whole landscape as beautifully as I can, it's just another way of kind of helping people understand how much the Nez Perce were losing. And 
also this kind this kind of balance um there's what also happens is there's a balance as we read this between our knowledge of what happened then and our feelings about that and also our feelings about the way the Indians are treated now, which isn't a whole lot better. But there are also so many parallels between the way the American government acted, bellicose and short-sightedly, then and the way we're acting now. It, when you were writing this, how much was now in your mind? Well, deep down, I always want to believe in the American dream. I love the Constitution and I love the idea of America, the idea that we have a chance to to be ourselves, we can define ourselves. And so I'm always hoping and looking for that in the present and in history. So anytime, you know, people get more freedom. So, you know, we elect a black man to be president, I'm happy, you know, or Gay marriage, I'm happy. Books that used to be banned for obscenity, now anyone can read them, no one cares. That's great. You know, that's American. That's the kind of America that I like. You know, these, these 19th century Anglo-Americans, they were looking for that. They were, in a way, their standards were lower. They were more desperate. And everybody was more racist back then. Mm. You know, so for them, it was... Not a big deal to dispossess, you know, a bunch of Indians to take their land. Nowadays, it's a different sort of thing, I think, that people just don't have to think about it because the army, the drones, the black prisons, they can do the dirty work for us and we can just keep shopping at the mall. That's a scary, scary (laughs) thought and a scary vision of America. You've written... This is the fifth of these you've written? Yes. Now, you're, are you writing them? Were you writing them all at once? Or are there two more that are in progress? Yeah, one much more in progress than the other. And the reason they come out, you know, with non-sequential numbers is because um, the numbers refer to the chronology. Mm-hmm. So dream number one happened at the beginning. And so if there's a... Uh, a dream that takes place, you know, earlier or later than another one, that whenever I finish it, I have to give it that number to correspond. Mm-hmm. Have, do these change in the writing? I mean, did this was this book always about the Nez Perce War? Or, and, and that's an interesting choice since it's rather obscure. Yeah, it was. And the others didn't change either. Of the two that I have remaining, one of them is about the Hopi and Navajo in the 1980s. And mm-hmm. I was at Big Mountain in 1986, uh, just before the Navajo were expelled by the government from the joint use area. And so, and that's going to be dream number seven. The other dream I may actually change. Uh, It was going to be about King Philip's War, uh, which happened in the Puritan times. And I'm thinking, you know, that might be too close to Argal, one of my dreams that Mm -hmm. talks about Uh, Pocahontas and John Smith and so forth. So maybe I'll write about the annexation of Hawaii or something, but I haven't quite decided. You do a lot of journalism in in the interim, and you write a lot. I mean, I I can't believe that. (laughs) When I looked at this book, this book in itself, in and of itself, would be the accomplishment of a lifetime. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thanks. I I mean, it's beautifully written. it's, It's a fantastic book. This is one of a stack of books that would go from 
higher than the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how much time do you spend per day writing? I like to write every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I work on lots of books at the same time. And I do lots of other things, too. So it, I won't say never, but it's almost never a burden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I'm working on The Seven Dreams at the beginning, there's a lot of drudgery involved in having to get up to speed on, you know, the languages and cultures and, like, you know, what kind of buttons the guys had on their uniforms. But after that, it gets really easy and fascinating. Now, are you working on a new piece of uh, journalism? I'm almost finished with a, a work of nonfiction about different kinds of energy, nuclear, uh, coal, oil, uh, natural gas, fracking, um, and some of the nuclear stuff is based on some um, works of journalism that I, I made at uh, Fukushima in Japan. Wow, this sounds fascinating. And, uh, you know, none of those choices sound particularly good. <laughs> you were right about that, unfortunately. Yeah, we're in a bad situation. <laughs> I've been speaking with William Pullman. His new book is The Dying Grass. Thank you for joining me, William. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.